Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to an ethnic. Oh, sorry. Can I start again? Ignore yeah. that. I just my words completely fluffed up there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You've got Beth and Charlie with you today. It's been quite a while since we've done one of these together, isn't it, Charlie? How have you been? I'm very good. It's been far too long, Beth, and um, I'm very excited to be back with my history little sis for uh, something that's a little out of both of our comfort zones today. A little bit. I mean, I think this is more my wheelhouse than your wheelhouse, but even then that's just for my uh, modern military historian head on. Um, <laughs> World War II is not necessarily where I always go, but I always enjoy a bit of a delve into it. Fantastic. Same here, especially in this house. Uh, we've got a fantastic guest with us today, Beth. Uh, Damien Lewis is a million copy best-selling author and one of our most popular World War II historians. So I know that there's going to be a lot of people very excited right about now. Having worked as a war and conflict reporter for some of the world's major broadcasters, he's gone on to write several hugely successful titles, including... The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, which is currently being brought to the big screen by none other than director Guy Ritchie. We're very, very excited about this. He's an all-round gent himself, and we're thrilled to have him with us today to discuss his newest book, SAS Forged in Hell. Hello, Damien. Hi, good to be with you. Fantastic. Well, I've really enjoyed um, wading through this incredible book. Um, lots of Lots of stories in there, lots to cover. The title of the book, let's start at the beginning, Forged in Hell. It's taken from a quote of David Sterling's when he's describing the founding of the SAS. Do you think this is a fair assessment of that time? Yeah, it is on many levels. I mean, it is on the level that they, um, you know, they, they started waging warfare in summer um, 41, which was really when, Britain's fortunes were at their direst, you could argue. Um, you know, prior to America aren't, aren't entering the war, pretty much everything going against us, barring the Battle of Britain um, and, and weathering the Blitz. So, you know, they came in at a really, really tough time. And, um, you know, their mission was to wage war deep behind enemy lines in North Africa um, in the most inhospitable and lifeless uh, part of the world that you can possibly imagine so in the sahara desert and that's of course 
why the concept was so groundbreaking, why they were so successful, because no one believed you could actually, you know, cross sometimes thousands of kilometres of the Sahara Desert to get deep behind enemy lines and attack and then somehow get back again. And of course, in doing so, you risked all the obvious dangers of, apart from getting killed or captured by the enemy, you risked all the obvious dangers of running out of food, water, fuel, losing your way and dying a horrible death in the desert. So, yeah, I mean, they were, um, you know, forged in hellish circumstances, certainly. And then, of course, um, for this book, Essay is Forged in Hell, I coined that phrase because they also faced hell on another level, which I think we tend to appreciate less, which is that they were so deeply unpopular. The more successful they became, the more unpopular they became because they were proving those kind of old guard, World War Two, you know, commanders who were now in position senior command wrong in their mindset and proving right that they could wage this form of, you know, unconventional piratical warfare that Churchill had called for, mm. you know, raiders, you know, uh, raiders to leave a trail of German corpses in their wake, you know, butcher and bolt raiders. These were phrases he coined. Wow. Um, and so they were proving those in high command wrong by their successes. And the more successful they became, the more unpopular they became. So by the time they were about to spearhead the Allied landings in Italy, they were still fighting that battle to survive against high command as much as they were fighting the enemy. That's incredible. Do you think that they were almost, I mean, when you talk about this kind of landscape that they're being put into and the sort of missions they're having to fight, you describe them as as pirates and raiders, which which I love. But do you think there was an element of it being a bit of a suicide mission? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were many many occasions where um, you know missions were undertaken from which, by rights, they should never have come back again. Um, and and it's you know it's um, it goes to the heart of the kind of people that that, that volunteered. They were all volunteers. Bear in mind that volunteered for uh, you know the SAS in the earliest months you couldn't command in my view you couldn't command individuals troopers to carry out these kind of missions imagine issuing orders saying we're going to drive you know three months behind enemy lines we're going to cross five thousand kilometers of the sahara we're not going to carry enough fuel to get back again we're going to have to steal it off the enemy so we won't have enough food and water we'll be hunted all the while by the enemy and our mission is to you know do something utterly impossible like blow up a load of enemy airfields which are closely guarded or you know um break our way into tobruk whatever it might be you can't order troopers to do that because if you just order them by dint of your rank and your superiority they're just as likely to wait until you get behind the first distant sand dune and put a bullet in the back of your head and then return to you know their lines and say well actually you know you know the, the mission was undoable we were ambushed and the officer was killed so you can only you can only uh you know get your your men to follow you on those kind of missions if you lead by what's called transformational command which is they they literally love you they you know they revere you you know speaking to Alex Borry who I interviewed um in February this year just sadly before he passed away one of the two last surviving veterans of 1AS in World War 2 and he said you know and he was talking about Paddy Main uh, the, the the commander of the SS for most of the war and he said we revered that man and we would follow him into hell because of anyone we knew he had the we had the greatest chances of coming out alive with him in command. And not only that, we knew that he would never ask us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And in fact, he would lead from the front. So that's the essence of transformational command. And you could only get to these kind of individuals to follow 
you on these suicidal missions if you had that essence about you? Absolutely, the, the power of, of having that kind of leader and is so important, isn't it? It's that, that is really key, isn't it, for this kind of organisation. Um, moving on a little bit, just tell us about sort of what forms part of, of the story, I suppose. It's the chronic of Schirner, and I'm sorry to any German pronounce, <laughs> if I've pronounced that awfully, I do apologise. <laughs> um, so please, if you just do tell us what, what was this and, and how does its rediscovery fit into the story? Yeah, so the chronic of Schneer and Town, um, and I'm probably pronouncing it awfully as well, um, <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, so we're talking 1945, you know, spring 45, and the SAS are pushing into the fatherland itself, and they're at the vanguard of of Allied troops using their jeeps to kind of thrust ahead and find, find ways through the German defences. And the German defences are, you know, they're SS diehards, they're Hitler youth, they're the Volkssturm, the, the German home guard, and they're, they're fighting a suicidal rear guard battle. You know, it, 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 this is when Germany should have surrendered and, and they hadn't done. So this is hellish. Um, and they reach the outskirts of this town called Schneeren and and they're ambushed and there's this there's this bloody firefight in which the SS lose four killed and, and many injured and it's one of their greatest losses in the push into Germany so when they eventually take that town Schneeren from where all this resistance was um was orchestrated they 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 find in that town this massive leather bound town and it's 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 the chronic of Schneeren town now these chronics were given by hitler to kind of like his his chosen town people to keep a record of life under the third and the glories of the third reich that's really what they were for so in your chronic you would you know it's like a scrapbook and you include in there all the rallies and events and cultural things that happen in in your townland during hitler's rule and so the ss find this massive leather bound town and they seize it, they carry it back to the UK. And then, of course, not shortly, uh, shortly after that, in October 45, the SAS is disbanded. As I said, they were never popular. And so Paddy Main and a few other individuals who were determined the memory would not die of their wartime exploits, they take that Schneerin chronic, they take out all the contents, all the pages. It's actually bolted together with mass massive brass studs, so you can literally unscrew it. They unscrewed it, took the pages out, and they use that to find the the records of the SAS at war so the the war diaries the reports the photographs the press cuttings everything that they collected went into that into that um book and then that was kept uh, in secret obviously in 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 Maine's um home in Northern Ireland at Mount Pleasant for many decades um for several reasons one because the SAS had been disbanded it wasn't supposed to exist and two because it was in Northern Ireland and of course the SAS in Northern Ireland is a somewhat um fractious uh, history um and then eventually um it it kind of came to the light of day when the family revealed it and donated it to the SAS Regimental Association and it was booked by dint of an invitation from Maine's niece Fiona Maine um to go to their home in Northern Ireland and look through all Maine's war chests and this incredible memorabilia that he has over there, or he had over there, um, and that she kind of looks after and is the custodian of. It was that invitation 10 years ago, which led me to um, start writing first essays, Brothers in Arms and now essays Forged in Hell, these books that kind of fell out of all that contents. And one of the things she has, in, of course, in, in, in the family home, 
or had in the family home was the original Das Chronic from Schneeren. So all the pages that have been taken out, um, you know, just just unbelievable, vibrant history. And, and, you know, so it's a study of that and a study of the copy of the War Diary and various other things that I did there, which, you know, helped feed into this process. I, the foresight to keep those pages as well, um, rather than just to, to say, you know, this is this is horrible Nazi stuff and to burn it, to actually preserve that bit of history. That shows an awful lot of foresight, doesn't it, really? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that they they would bring out the um, what became known as the Paddy Main Diary. That's what it became known as. And then, of course, it became known as the SAS War Diary eventually. But for many decades, it was known as the Paddy Main Diary. And they'd bring it out like at Christmas celebrations or at birthdays. And they'd all gather around and they'd peruse it and they'd, you know, They'd be drinking and celebrating and reliving the old times. And yes, they 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 kept very 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 carefully all those pages from the original chronic with tissue paper separating these thick parchment pages, so they're all beautifully preserved. I'm trying to imagine the contents of Paddy Main's war chest. Um, when you're working with limited remaining first-hand witnesses of of these actual events. It's got to come with a certain amount of pros and cons. Um, so finding this this treasure trove, it must have felt like striking gold. Yeah, it's one of those moments that you rarely, if ever, come across as a historian, I have to say. I mean, actually, what happened was I, I had a an email drop in via my website, you know, from someone calling himself one of the keepers. And he said, you know, we're the keepers of the, of the legacy of, of, of Paddy Main. And. And he said, would you be willing to come over and look through this material and, and meet Mains and East? And, and so I jumped on a plane and went to Northern Ireland. But there was that moment when I walked in the door of the household and all this material was spread out in the living room, including Paddy Mains' uniform. What? And, uh, you know, like the binoculars he stole off a, a German officer. And Main was renowned for going into war. The men said he went into war with a Bren gun, so a light machine gun on one shoulder and a camera on the other. He was a he was always taking photographs and he was doing it for two reasons. One, it was a record of the SAS at war, but more importantly, it was to boost the morale. And then he would get the, the photographs developed at the next town that they stopped at and he would distribute them around the men. It was this incredible morale boosting exercise. But in that war chest were not just scores and scores and scores of photographs, but original undeveloped photograph rolls of photographic film and cine film. So you can imagine the kind of immense, um, you know, value that all that stuff, you know, uh, gives to a historian. Because as you say, you know, there are at th that stage there were two survivors from one SAS. There's a there's a survivor still with us from from later SAS operations and the SBS and from SOE, but very very few. So, you know, getting your hands on that absolutely firsthand, written at the time, the letters and the diaries is um yeah it's priceless absolutely priceless i think those kind of very tangible things that you can have as you say like the photographs and so on they they do provide such a depth of of knowledge don't they and do do these contents because obviously at, at the time as as you've mentioned the sas they weren't particularly liked and i'm sure there were many contman misconceptions about them and who they were and what they did did the contents of that chest that you found all of that wonderful equipment and his uniform and so on did it dispel any of those sort of roguish heroes theroes 
like thugs, raiders, did it dispel any of those sort of ideals about them? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, you've kind of hit the nail on the head, really. Um, so in that war chest, one of, the, one of the things that struck me most of all, it's probably not what you would imagine, was the letters from the parents or brothers and sisters or grandparents of those who had been killed under Maine's command or had gone missing in action. And it's letters written in response to what Maine had written to them. And from the letter, you understand that he had written a heartfelt, detailed, personal account of how that soldier had served, what he'd meant to the unit and how he had died. And in reading those and then in finding some of Paddy Main's original letters, you start to understand that he was a man with an immense heart, you know, a, an incredible solicitude for those under his command. And then you start to dig deeper and you start to realise that he was, yes, he was deeply troubled throughout the war. And yes, he drank far too much at times. And yes, he was occasionally, you know, violent, even towards his own men. But you start to dig into the reasons why and you start to understand one of the things, if not the thing that tortured him more than anything else, if you can try and imagine it, was losing those he commanded, losing those individuals that he believed it was his duty to get through the war alive. And so that when one of them was killed or went missing in action or terribly wounded, he felt it as a personal failure himself and felt burdened by guilt and responsibility. Um, and the more I kind of looked into that and studied that, I, I eventually I reached out to a lady called Ross Townsend, who's a top expert in the UK on post-traumatic stress disorder. And with the first book, um, Brothers in Arms, and this book, Forged in Hell, I, I asked Ross to read an early draft. And she said, look, you know, you need to understand something. One of these missions, you know, one mission for eight weeks behind enemy lines, facing the kind of insecurities and threats and dangers and fears, and then that seeing your brother warriors killed, wounded, having to do these terrible things to the enemy, you know, knifing them at close quarters, whatever it might be. She said one of those missions would be enough to give you, you know, terrible trauma. She said five years of those operations behind enemy lines. She said, it's inconceivable. There is absolutely no way that you would not end up with significant PTSD. And she said, and bear in mind, this is fascinating because, I mean, I didn't didn't understand this. She said the people who are most susceptible to PTSD are people with an enormous imagination and with enormous capacities for empathy, because you have to be able to imagine it, what it's like for your friend or one of the enemy to die or get injured and know how terrible that is. And you have to have the empathy to feel that in your heart and your soul, because that's what gives you the trauma. Now, who are the kind of people drawn to the SAS? Well, you have to have incredible imagination. That was the absolute key tenet of what they're about because you had to think of ways to attack the enemy that the enemy would never imagine possible and they did that's exactly what they're about you struck at the enemy in such a way you thought well they can't be doing that because that would never happen therefore it succeeded and you had to have empathy because remember what i said about transformational command you had to make the men follow you because there was this incredible bond between you you could only have that if you're an empathetic individual but those two traits mean you are also highly susceptible to PTSD. So, yeah, you know, the cost paid by those doing these operations was, you know, um, in many places, well, it was life-ending, you know, for some of them after the war. His, his level of intelligence, I'm thinking of, like, emotional intelligence, and he's a he's a smart guy, isn't he, Paddy May? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, you look at the people he really bonded with, um, you know, 
during the war. So I'll just name a few of them. Malcolm Playdell, the SAS's first doctor, highly read, cultured individual who actually initially was shocked that he'd actually joined this bunch, <laughs> bunch of piratical, you know, maverick warriors deep in the desert, but ended up coming to love them like his brothers. Uh, uh, um, oh, gosh, his name's gone. The Belgium. Come on. Um, oh, gosh. Well, we'll have to buy your book to to find. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, but 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 so many of and 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 um and Gunn, the guy who took over from Malcolm Playdell as the medic, when when Playdell himself ended up suffering from from terrible PTSD after the end of the desert operations because he had failed to save so many of those who were injured that he was there to try and save. So Gunn, who took over another. You know, very, very highly educated, well-read individuals. You know, Maine and him became very, very close indeed. And those were the kind of people he was drawn to. And and he was himself, you know, a well-read, highly educated solicitor by trade. And so those, you know, those were kind of traits that he and they shared in common. But but at the same time, he could relate to everybody under his command. And that was one of the, you know, one of the alchemic kind of magical traits about the man. So after after David, David Sterling gets captured in the January of uh, 1943, Paddy Main now finds himself in charge of the unit. How do we know how he how he felt about having to take on that command at that time? Yeah, Bob Mello, that's the Belgian. <laughs> fantastic man, fantastic story. No, I mean when when David Sterling was captured in February 43. Um, you know, Maine did not want the mantle of command. You know, so, some people have, you know, greatness thrust upon them. Others are born to it. You know, the, yep. the saying, well, Maine, he wasn't born to it. You know, certainly he was born to a reasonably affluent, but, you know, that was all family in Northern Ireland. And um, he had no craving for high command. What he craved was to be lead, leading his men in the teeth of the action. That's where he came alive. But he realised in February, March 1943 that, this was the chance their detractors were going to use to kill them off. I mean, they refer to the SAS, this is Middle East High Command, in reports on the SAS about how trying to get rid of them. They refer to them as raiders of the thug variety. That's actually the phrase they use. You know, wow. I mean, bear in mind, you know, this one unit, Rommel himself said, you know, in his uh, in his own diaries, they cause me more problems than any unit of comparable size. And he didn't just mean in terms of, you know, cost his his military machine but he meant in terms of the morale mm. you know that the the the, the 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 italian and german troops lost because if you could get hit any time any place anywhere it's so morale destroying but even despite all that despite the fact they destroyed more warplanes on the ground than the raf did in the air in north africa during the same time all these things they were deeply unpopular and Maine knew that the argument was being made in high command well Yes, that kind of warfare was fine in the desert, of course, where there are these wide open spaces and you can maraud across the Sahara. But we're moving into Europe and that would be a much more gentlemanly form of warfare. And there's no room for you there. He knew those arguments were being made. So he knew if he didn't grasp the nettle and take command and lead them into Europe and find a purpose for them in Europe, then that would be the end of the regiment. I find that interesting when you say it's like that that change where it's acceptable in the desert but it's not in in Europe. I think that's just a a fascinating sort of way to that the 
the SAS have been their, their actions, I suppose, have sort of been interpreted as what is acceptable and what, what isn't acceptable. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, it was fine when it was out of sight and out of mind in North Africa. But, you know, if you're going to take it into Italy or France or, you know, heaven forbid, close to Britain's shores, because, of course, you know, after Europe, the SS were, were brought back to the UK to train for D-Day. So when you're going to start, you know, operating in close proximity to regular uh, military units, you know, we can't have you doing the kind of things you've been doing in North Africa, you know, not wearing proper uniform, not saluting your officers. I mean, no no apparent discipline that we can see because the discipline was self-discipline. You didn't need discipline in, in the SAS because all that would happen is if you messed up or stepped out of line, you'd be returned to unit. It was called RTUing. And that was the greatest threat that anybody faced because to be withdrawn from this brotherhood, from this elite, was the thing you most you most feared more than anything else. And so all they all they needed in terms of that that that, that system of self-discipline was the threat of RTU. But it was such an unusual and, and groundbreaking way of running a military outfit that it just didn't sit well with with many, many on high command. Churchill was always, you know, um, their greatest um, protector and their greatest fan, of course. But, you know, he was he had a lot on, he had a lot to do and a lot on his mind. He couldn't always be there to to watch their back. Yeah, absolutely. Um so obviously, let's move into some of the, the historical content for the book. So Forged in Hell is centred around the campaign that's fought in the summer of 1943. Um, what were the company's objectives and how was Paddy Main's leadership? How did it affect the campaign? Would it have been maybe slightly different if Sterling had done it instead? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, Maine had to argue for a role for the SAS. So bear in mind, you know, this is in preparation for Operation Husky, the the first Allied landings in, in, in Europe, you know, the soft underbelly of Europe, as Churchill and Roosevelt called it, you know, and the biggest amphibious operation to date and you know of a scope to rival almost the d-day landings so maine had to find a role for the ss within that and of course the role that they were given was to be the very tip of the spear so what did that mean it meant that the, the sicily landings which would open the campaign there were um a group of very heavy shore guns um on the pig's head peninsula it translates into in, into into english so on the southern tip of sicily and if those guns weren't taken out 
obviously the invasion fleet could be seen and blown out of the water and it would be catastrophic. The landings might even fail. So someone had to get ashore. And these were gun emplacements encased in concrete. You couldn't bomb them from the air. With The RF had tried and they got nowhere. Someone had to get ashore, seize the guns and actually blow them up you know, using demolition charges. And so that's what Maine argued the SAS were perfectly suited for. In a sense, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, 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 a typical SAS operation. In fact, it wasn't at all because, of course, you know, SAS... Typically, you know, they, 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 they struck in small bands, a few dozen strong at the most, you know, driving their jeeps, hit and run attacks, you know, in and out, scoot and shoot, disappear into the desert. This was very different. They would be going in around about 260 strong. So all of uh, Paddy Main's squadron at that time. And they would be going in not only to seize these gun emplacements and destroy them, but to hold them until... The Allied landing fleet had got ashore because obviously if you went in and seized the gun emplacements and then and then the enemy retook them and they weren't completely destroyed, they could then turn them back on the ship. So it really wasn't a typical SAS operation at all. But Maine knew, not for the first time and not for the last time, it has to be said, that they had to prove themselves at the sharp end of combat to earn their survival. And that's the raison d'etre which lay behind um, their role in Operation Husky. And I suppose going back to your question, you know. Maine regretted the fact Sterling wasn't there. And he writes about it. Not often, but he does. He basically says, you know, I wish David were here with me now to share my misgivings with, because there's no one else he can talk to on that level. Okay. But at the same time, he actually, so during that period from March to July, when they're training in North Africa, a lot of new recruits, but a lot of the old guard as well, Maine becomes quite unpopular on one level. And he becomes quite unpopular because he drives the men to such an extent. He gets the nickname the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland. He yeah. is literally doing, he's driving them repeatedly on these incredible forced marches uh, to the extent that at times he's getting to take Benzi, Benny's Benzedrine, the, um, you know, speed, basically, you know, which is the drug, that the pet pill that the British developed when they discovered the Germans were using something similar. Um, and he's making them do these kind of cr- crazed force marches time and again so that it becomes a pointless exercise seemingly but he's doing it for a very specific reason and they realize this after the the assault on 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 the pig's head peninsula because bear in mind they're going into outnumbered 50 to 1 to attack heavily defended gun emplacements which will involve scaling near vertical cliffs laden down with all their weaponry at night and the weaponry includes, you know, up to uh, up to mortars. So they're carrying mortars and, and mortar shells. The, the stakes involved and the odds against them are so incredibly high that Maine understood unless they were trained above and beyond what they had ever been trained before, unless their fitness and their esprit de corps was such that it had never been achieved before, they 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 they, they risked failure. And failure at that stage not only risked the invasion fleet, but it risked the survival of the SS itself. And so he he pushed them to the limits and beyond. And he did that for one other reason as well. It's fascinating to read the war diaries at the time. Incredible. Dozens of men were returned to dozens of these trainees were returned to unit. Even on the day of setting sail for the for the invasion, a guy's returned to unit. So that's literally he's getting ready to sail. He does something wrong. He's returned to unit. And the reason being, Maine viewed it thus. He thought, OK, if a man is not up to task. One, I risk losing him in combat, but much more importantly, I risk losing the lives of those others on his shoulder if he fails to perform properly in battle. 
And so that relentless um, driving priority that Maine had during those those long months of training in North Africa, it made him really quite unpopular for a while with the men. But as soon as they set ashore in southern Italy and realised what they were saddled with, they all appreciated what he'd really been about. And I think that's only something he could have brought to the party. That's just incredible. How long were it how long were they training waiting for the waiting for sort of going on the mission? So they started in March and the mission was July, you know. So and bear in mind during all during all that period, they didn't know what the target was, of course. Yeah. Mainly, but no one else knew for obviously for security reasons. Even when they set sail on the Ulster Monarch, this converted car ferry on which which was the landing ship, they still didn't know what the target was, to the extent that the commander of the demolition crew a chap called deakins the he only realized what he was going being sent in to blown up when halfway through that journey he was given uh you know surveillance photos of the guns themselves and he was like, all right so i'm going there to blow up some guns still didn't know where so you know they were training for a mission which they surmised was somewhere in europe and it had to be a landing because they were repeatedly practicing landing by craft and cliff cliff climbs but they had no idea what the objective was. So it was only when the objective became clear and when they started, you know, fighting their way onto onto Italy's shores that they understood why they had been put through what they'd been put through. In terms of targets to go and attack, great big guns is probably not high on the list of things that you really want to be attacking. No, no. And, 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 and what made it infinitely worse was that you know, the, the night of the attack, um, you know, Sod's Law, um, a terrible storm blew up. And so, you know, they were, they, they, they were, they had to go in in their landing craft in these appalling, the weather was so bad. This gives you an idea of how, 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 uh, terrible it was. When they assaulted the first gun emplacement, the Italian commander called the German commander in the next in the next stronghold and said we're being attacked by british paratroops has come to our aid and the germans response was impossible in these weather conditions you know uh, troops could never have landed and so they didn't come i mean that's so in a way it kind of played into maine and his raiders hands because they they landed in impossible conditions but there was also a massive airborne contingent to the to, to the husky landings and those brave paratroopers uh suffered calamity i mean dozens scores of gliders were blown off course landed in the sea hundreds of paratroopers drowned and in fact when maine and his sas were driving to the beaches on their landing craft they were passing they, they encountered these gliders you know sinking beneath the waves and they encountered men you know paratroopers crying out for help and there was little they could do because of course their own craft were overloaded and if they stopped to help these stricken individuals then they were endangering the whole invasion fleet so you know um really high stakes stuff and the fact that that they got ashore and they pulled it off was um yeah really quite extraordinary and it is a testament to their training and the fact that maine insisted insisted on keeping command and control of how they were deployed so he insisted they go in by sea and it was it was an incredibly it was an incredibly inspired decision. I mean, you know, the first ever mission by the SAS, of course, Operation Squatter. You know, eighteen months or more before, they'd flown into the North Africa desert, parachuted in, a terrible storm had blown up, and 
60 something had deployed and only 22 made it back again. So he knew from experience how badly airborne operations could go wrong. I mean, this is this is a huge, huge moment, isn't it? I mean, I, I, when I was reading this in the book, it really shocked me. The idea that you are going to do a mission and you come across another company and it's pretty much an entire company, right? Mm-hmm. They are. They haven't even landed. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, it's terrible. It's an awful accident. Um, in terms of you know how how we think of Paddy Main, and I'm thinking about the Paddy Main that that I knew as someone who hasn't done this, the the research that you've done, who hasn't read the books that that are out there, but has seen the BBC drama that was on recently, mm. that we really had to work very hard not to call rogue traders every time. It was like, oh, do you want to watch rogue traders? No, 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 it's not rogue traders. It's rogue heroes. I mean, it's got to be such a source of frustration when you're trying to tell his story, when you can see how effective he is as a leader based on this poor company that his men are having to come across. Um how how does this sort of affect telling his story and you know getting across that he's an incredible commander? Well, it, you know, it's it, you could argue it's an uphill struggle because you know there has been a um, an impression given of him that he was a a madman and a, a drunken um, you know berserker. Um, there were there were times when Paddy Main drank far too much, but let me tell you something. Okay, I've been in war. Okay, I spent 20 years as a war reporter. Okay, mm-hmm. I saw some really bad stuff. I was in some really difficult situations, as you can imagine. And there were many times when I drank too much, and I make no bones about it. In fact, that was the therapy accepted by war reporters. You would go to the bar afterwards and you'd drink yourself into a catatonic heap. I remember one situation where a friend of mine who's now dead, a war reporter, who actually died of a heroin overdose on the Pakistan-Afghan border. Whether he had overdosed or whether someone had put it into his veins, we don't know. But I remember a a time when he walked into a bar full of reporters drinking and rolled a hand grenade across the floor and yelled out, get out there, you lazy bastards, and report on the war. Now, the hand grenade wasn't primed, but it didn't alter the fact that it was a little bit scary, as you can imagine. Now, that's the kind of um, culture that, that existed in that milieu and the same kind of culture existed in the media of special operations and i can completely relate to it because when you're under that kind of stress and facing that kind of trauma you have no other outlet but to drink with those individuals who once understand what you are about and there are very few of them because you have to been in that situation to understand it and equally things get out of hand and an individual of Paddy Main's physical stature, you know, a, 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 you know, the Irish University's heavyweight boxing champion, a, a Irish and British Lions rugby international of international acclaim. When you get out of hand, you're quite a dangerous individual. But you need to look at, you know, one needs to look at the multifaceted character because there are moments of quiet and beauty and calm and solicitude. And you have to talk to those he commanded and read the letters from the parents of those that he lost, you know, to understand that this was a this man was a revered soldier whose men 
would follow him anywhere. You don't you, you don't follow someone anywhere because you're afraid of him, because he's a berserker, because he's a drunken bully. That doesn't happen. What you do if you're being commanded by a, a berserker and a drunken bully, you wait for the first opportunity when he's behind a sand dune and you put a bullet in his head because you don't like the guy. Maine was the reverse. You know, the, the way he inspired those under his command. And bear in mind, he did that from, you know, um, summer 41 in the desert through to, you know, May 45 in Germany. Did it all the way through. He was constant all the way through. You know, bear in mind that the mission in Germany where he was, many people believe, he was cited for a Victoria Cross. It was signed off on by Montgomery. So Montgomery. And somewhere at a higher level, it was downgraded to a fourth distinguished service order. But even that mission itself, so we're talking right towards the end of the war, Maine is at the vanguard, not just leading his men, but going deep into harm's way to try and save a bunch of his soldiers who were pinned down. So he's constant all the way through the war. So, you know, he, he th this is a man of towering stature. And um, put it this way, had I, you know, <laughs> I've never been in the military, but had I had I been alive in World War Two and had I volunteered for special service, uh, I would have wanted no one else to be commanding me other than him. And that's what you get from those who were under his command. When you read their accounts or you talk to survivors today, they say, just like Alec Borry did, God rest his soul, you know, Paddy Main could lead you into hell, but you would want no one else commanding you if you went there because he could bring you out again alive and you would follow him into hell because you revered and you loved him to such an intensity. That's a, a really good point, I think. And just when you've just mentioned your own personal experiences there as well of seeing some of the things that you've seen and those who you've worked with, some of the things that you've seen, that level of pressure, uh, it almost you need like a little bit of a maybe an, an escapism I suppose and that sort of I suppose ties into what the next question is going to be about which you did briefly mention earlier which was about the the Bennies Ben, ben Zedredine I can't I'm not a me medical person either so that's horribly mispronounced as well um but was the use of it quite um I suppose common not really the quite quite right word i'm looking for was it basically just allowed you know churchill as you said big big um supporter of the sas did he basically okay their their drug use and and how how did it impact the men of the sas did they find themselves you know um for want of a better phrase high as a kite or were they how did they react to the use of that drug yeah so benzedrine was adopted by kind of elite units, commandos, SAS, SPS, because um, a German plane was shot down over Britain and they found in there the German, the German pet pill, the, 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 the chemical that the Germans had perfected. Now, this was something that they'd actually perfected before the war and it was, it's actually men, menthamphetamine, so it's really serious stuff, right? Um, I can't remember the trade name of it at the moment, but it, but it's there in the book. And they'd, they'd actually you know, prescribed it, or I think it was actually on public sale before the war. So all the, you know, the, lot, lots of Germans were taking it and it was supposed to be, you know, this kind of wonder drug. But when the war broke out or, or prior to war breaking out, they realised there was a German scientist who tested it on troops and realised that it could basically keep you going and keep you awake and bolster your kind of, aggression the fighting spirit for days and days on end so that's what the pervitin 
That's what it's called in 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 in, in Germany, pervitin. Okay, and those pills were found on on a downed Luftwaffe aircrew, and so in response to that, Churchill said, "Well, we need to." come up with something ourselves and and that led to uh, the adoption of benzodrine bennies as they were well known uh, for elite forces and what effect did it have on you well it made the main effect it have on, had on you was if you can imagine a kind of buzz a speed that just keeps you going mm. far longer than you would be able to continue otherwise so you used it on false marches to escape from the enemy uh you know main used it during training when they're on these um you know back to back 45 mile marches and he 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 started using it on one of the troops which was you know which he saw was lagging behind to see you know what effect would have on them and suddenly they were right at the front so it was used in those situations where you just needed to bolster your performance to either get in and attack an objective or get out and escape um uh you know with, with your with your patrol intact um and yeah it was used extensively throughout the war and it was used extensively by these kind of these kind of uh, units. Um, I mean, I've written other books where, you know, the guys are dosed up on Benzedrine before they, before uh, you know, where the officer actually stands there and says, right, all of you take your pill. We're going to go and attack in in two hours' time. We need to be on our toes. It was absolutely accepted. But if you talk to, you know, medical experts about the long term effect of using it, the long term effect of using it is not good because it feeds into trauma. Because what you're doing is you're heightening the whole experience and repeated episodes of doing that have a significantly deleterious effect on the psyche. So, yeah, it's it, it was far from healthy. But, you know, look, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's what that was all about. And it was also a response, of course, to the Germans, uh, you know, the Nazi war machine um, doing it in the first place. I think it may have been if it wasn't Benny's, it was definitely something similar that MGM had judy garland and all the the sort of child stars on to keep them dancing keep them dancing and singing Wouldn't be surprised at all absolutely yeah yeah and pep to keep them going um yeah. actually that that then does lead into something that you know i can't let you go without asking about this damien um i want some movie gossip come on then mm. um the last time we met mm. you'd recently visited the set of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare at the mm. helm of the incredible Guy Ritchie. For anyone who's mm. not sort of picking up the name straight away, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch, you know, all of those incredible films. Um, can you share any on-set tidbits with our listeners? Have you got any <laughs> gossip? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> Go on then. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was... Uh... I had I was invited to go on set uh, on HMS Belfast, which they hired out for a week. And because I'm a antisocial, grumpy old writer who sits in his study spending far too much time on his own, I didn't want to go. <laughs> and I didn't want to go because I thought that all that's going to happen is I'm going to go there, meet these stars who are going to be really arrogant and full of their own ego. And I'm probably going to have an argument with them all. It's going to be a disaster. Anyway, eventually the... Laid very nice lady who's like the film runs the film PR got me on the phone and basically said, uh, right, so you know, this is the arrangements. And I was trying to kind of go, well, you know, I'm a bit busy. And she said, listen, you are coming. <laughs> I, I, don't even try and you're coming. So I went anyway. And the, the reason why I'm bringing it up was because you know, they were filming on, on HMS Belfast, and so, um, uh, Alan Richardson was there, the guy who plays Jack Reacher in the, um, in the Amazon series, the American guy, uh -huh. uh, 
Henry Cavill was there, of course, Superman, and a rake of other stars. Um, and look, and I know I'm being serious and honest, right? So they bring me along, you know, this kind of guy in a tweed jacket who's the, who's the author. And they were delightful. Aww. They were, I mean, Henry Cavill said to me, it is an honour, such an honour to make your book, or at least the first fifth of your book, into a movie. And we are so looking forward to doing that. The next movie where where they go and where they go and assault that airbase, and they're all yelling out orders in German. And then um, Alan Richardson, who's this enormous guy, I don't know, six foot four or something. I mean, I'm I'm five foot six, if that. It's towering over me. <laughs> and he's an American, of course, with a strong American accent. And he's playing Anders Lassen, who is um, who's a Dane. And I <laughs> and I said uh, I said so. Yeah, how's it being? You know, playing Anders Lassen. He said do I. He said, everything's I'm a German, no one thinks I'm a Dane, but I'm trying my hardest. So, you know, these were these were really genuinely nice people with none of the none of the prejudice that I'd I'd heaped on their shoulders. And, <laughs> and then it continued because I then tried to leave early. <laughs> and again the lady said, You're not going because you've got to meet Guy Ritchie and Jerry Brookheimer, who was the producer in the States. And again, you know. Jerry Brookheimer just came up to me and said, listen, you know, such an honor to make a book into a film. So glad we got here. So, look, yeah, I, I was wrong. She was right. They were lovely people. And all my prejudices were completely unfounded. So, um, yeah, that's my confession about the movie. Shoot. Amazing. Well, we can't wait to have you back on when the when the film comes out, because I definitely want to chat to you about that process and what it's like bringing history researched history bringing it to the screen and watching watching a creative team yeah absolutely goes yeah. to town on you so we'll get you on and can we can we get henry cavill on as well do you think he'll... Oh, yeah yeah sure no absolutely he said look any 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 podcast you want to be on with me just give me a show okay. yeah. we might I'll be first to... in the queue for being on that one yeah <laughs> and i think we should record in person in person yeah no, sure, absolutely. absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but until then, the book SAS Forged in Hell is out on the 26th of October. Um, we're, we're really looking forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining us, Damien. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you, Beth, for being a brilliant co-host. No, thank you, Charlie. It's always good doing these with you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result... We have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.